0: Well, good morning. Did you open the Bibles with me to Psalm 63? Before we get to that, I have a point of clarification. Back in April, I preached a message on um, mentoring. And as I was doing that message, I got to Numbers 8. Numbers 8 talked about when the guys were 50 years old and they were Levites. Uh, They got to retire. And I heard this cheer in the congregation because I actually said that you no longer had the lead when you hit 50. And that was misspeaking. That was incorrect. Moses wrote that when he was over 80. And uh, so the scriptures aren't saying when you hit 50 years of age that you retire and you quit. Um, it's the idea, what I wanted to emphasize, when you hit 50, you should be looking over your shoulder to be certain that you're mentoring somebody, bringing somebody along, raising up new leaders, so that when you're over 50, you are still leading in the church. There's a reason why they're called elders and not youngers. And uh, that's to bring leadership in the church. So I want to correct that. Some people who chatted with me about that. And it was interesting when I listened to the message, my prayer that Sunday was that we'd be a people like the Bereans. And the mark of the Bereans, when they heard the preaching of the word, they went home to study the scriptures to see if it was true. And as these folks came and talked with me, they said, Mike, is this really true? And my answer was like, no, it's not. And so just clarifying for you that as older men and women in the church were to be mentoring younger men and women, you are still to lead, but it is handing off leadership let me emphasize this though, it's still giving young people, young leaders, the opportunity to lead within the church, sharing leadership with us as we do leadership. After that clarification, I'll probably three or four more people talk to me afterwards again, and that is just fine for clarification. All okay. We're doing a study in the book of Psalms on intimacy with God, so let's bow together as we pray and look into God's word. Lord, a sense of quietness of the soul is good in the busy world we live. To realize not even a sound in the room, but the noise that we're accustomed to. Lord, we want our hearts and minds quieted that Your Spirit may speak to us. Oh, a real freedom to speak to our hearts. We're people who talk about wanting intimacy with God. But we're also people who find it difficult to find the time for intimacy with God. So our desire is that your spirit is able to speak to our hearts. We find ourselves being addressed by what we need to hear. That your word is able to be that powerful tool to examine our motives, our intentions, our life. So that you make us the men and women the young people and children have a heart that seeks after God. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. When the psalm is right, they sometimes give us a little context for what they're saying. Not always. But when they do that, it gives us sort of a little historical reference by which the psalm comes out of. This is one of those psalms. David starts off and just gives us a little brief statement about what this psalm is about or what it comes out of or what experience he has. As we're reminded, the first verse here is actually that little superscription that you have where it says Psalm 63 and then it reads, a psalm of David, and here's the phrase, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, as soon as you hear that about David's life, I think, at least for myself, my immediate direction was, well, I know when this took place. This is when David found himself anointed to be the next king and Saul was chasing him all over the land. That's what it's talking about. It would seem that's true until you get to verse 11. Take a look at verse 11. Here's what David says at the end of his song, psalm. But the king will rejoice. this isn't when he was waiting to be king. This is after Saul was king. This is a wilderness experience that David had after he became king. And all of a sudden you pause and say, when in the life of David did somehow he leave Jerusalem and find himself wandering out in the wilderness after becoming king? We find it takes place in 2 Samuel 15. It's a story when he has brought his son Absalom back to the city. And after Absalom's been in Jerusalem for a period of time, he's been going out and building alliances and friendships with people out in the countryside. And over time, Absalom builds allegiances to him. And all of a sudden, Absalom rises up in Jerusalem. He's going to find himself coming against his own father, David. And David actually packs up his family, packs up the leaders, and leaves the city of Jerusalem to go out into Judea. And while he's out in Judah, Absalom takes over the throne, the kingdom in Jerusalem. And David, after being king, is wandering out in the wilderness. This is a psalm that's talking about intimacy with God. When all of a sudden you find yourself pushed out into the wilderness, find yourself pushed away from God, pushed away from your circumstances. Because all of a sudden you have a child who's rebellious and somehow usurping authority in such a way that it pushes you away from their life. This is a psalm that talks about if all of a sudden you start reflecting and you realize you have that child that's disobedient to God. And with their disobedience, they somehow slowly pushed you away that you feel a sense that you're no longer the one in your own home who has authority you're able to do things. It's a psalm for that parent who finds himself somehow disappointed with their child because of the foolishness that they've done. They've watched them out of Proverbs and say, why did you do such a thing? And your heart's filled with disappointment. It's when all of a sudden you find yourself for David in his wilderness where all the sense that he should have been the leader of his home and bring grace and mercy to his own family finds a son who's belling, who actually pushes him out of his home. Oh, this has application far beyond just dads wrestling with their relationships with sons. The whole idea of dads understand there's this brokenness in the relationship between a father and son this deals with family when all of a sudden you feel yourself pushed out not having what you always thought you would have that's when you're married and all of a sudden your spouse for some reason determines that they're going to sort of drift away from the Lord and you find yourself being alone in your own home whether it's a husband who starts pursuing other pleasures and activities whether it's a wife who finds herself distracted and so busy, but somehow there's a slowly drifting apart where you find yourself in all honesty in a wilderness and alone that you've been pushed out of your own home. That's when children find themselves looking to their parents who have been godly in the past or hoping they'll be godly and somehow expecting them to do some things that are good and righteous, but as they watch their parents. Their heart is filled with anger or bitterness, and somehow they pull away from God. They pull away from God's people, and the child watches and finds himself in a wilderness and alone because the home, the home is not what they wanted it to be. It's when brothers and sisters find that conflict. Somehow you find the breakdown in communication. Somehow as believers, you had this fellowship that you had over all these years. And somehow as years pass, there feels to be this slowly drifting in separation. When you get together, it's not comfortable. There's a tension you feel. And all of a sudden you feel this sense of being pushed out into the wilderness. And you feel the sense of aloneness even when you gather around a holiday together. David writes this psalm about intimacy with God when all of a sudden he's no longer in his home, no longer in his own bedroom, no longer in his own kitchen, no longer in his own throne room, no longer with all the things that make up the home. He finds himself driven away from that, out in the wilderness, running and oppressed from his own son. And while he's out there running around, away from his son who's rebelling. He finds himself one day walking along, and there's a ridge up along the top. And all of a sudden comes somebody from Saul's family, his predecessor, who starts calling down curses to David as he goes by. And Shimei does this over and over again. And David has to listen to the oppression of his predecessor's family. It has to do with the oppression within his own family as he gets pushed out into the wilderness and wondering, God, how? How do I have intimacy with God when I've been pushed out in the wilderness? How do I cultivate an intimacy with God when all seems to have been lost and fallen apart? How do I deal with this broken relationship? How do I deal with rebellion and disobedience? How do I cope with this God? It's not what I ever wanted or ever dreamed about. God, my world, my family, my home, it doesn't look a thing like I always thought it would be. And somehow out of that, David writes this psalm. David somehow draws together what his heart is feeling. Somehow out in this wilderness, he starts pleading with God and says, here's what it's like. And here's how he describes it. Verse 1 in our Bibles, where it starts off, and he says, and this is where his seeking soul comes to bear. He says, "Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's in a real wilderness. He's in a real desert. There is no water. And he says of his soul, it feels just like that in his soul. He starts off and says, look God, in the midst of all this, I want to seek earnestly for you. That idea of earnest is also used the idea of dawn. I mean, you almost get this picture, this alighting of the idea of as soon as the sun breaks, as soon as it hits your eyes, you wake up and you're earnestly from the outset of the sunny morning going after God. He says, God, as soon as the sun breaks, I find myself diligently seeking after you. God, I'm looking for something immediately. When I wake up in the morning, I need something. Why? He says the reason for that is, notice the text, because my soul thirsts for you. There's a sense of our soul, this capacity that we have, this immaterial part of us. That all of a sudden we get pushed out in that wilderness and we find a sense of exhaustion setting in. We find this sense that all of a sudden I need water, I need food, I need sustenance to survive. And in that absence of being in home and, <coughs> and the loss of those things, all of a sudden our heart, our soul cries out and we feel this lostness and this thirst that overtakes us. He describes it's not only a soul that thirsts, he even says, my flesh yearns for thee. It's this idea of almost fainting in the wilderness. The sheer exhaustion that sets in. There's no food. There's no water. God, I'm just exhausted from wandering in the wilderness. So what I find myself is I'm seeking after you. I'm earnestly going after you because I need to pursue you because of all that I feel and all that I've lost. He continues it. He describes it in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's his description. It's interesting in other verses. This idea of thirsting in Psalm 42. We even sing a song like this. Like a deer that pants for water, so my soul pants after you. Proverbs 25, 25 says this. It speaks of this kind of weary soul. You know what it wants? Cold water. There's something refreshing about that cold water when you're thirsty and you're parched. And this whole idea, you know, when you wake up in the morning... For those of us men who sleep with our mouths open, and you wake up in the morning and your mouth is just as dry as can be. I, I, I dry. And it's sort of dry. You know where your tongue is when it gets that dry, right? It's on the roof of your mouth. And you recall when you sort of pull it off the roof of the mouth because it's stuck. It is that dry. That is the picture here. There's a dryness in our soul. When all of a sudden we get pushed out into the wilderness, we get pulled away from all those things that we have. All those things we want, all those things we've dreamt of, we get pushed out in the wilderness. It forces us to reflect, God, what is life really made of? God, what is really worth my time and energy? And our soul gets depleted. And all of a sudden we find ourselves there. It's like, look, we need seeking souls that come after God. And it's like, but but David, if that's what it is. What does the seeking soul do? How does it operate in the wilderness? What does it do? And he tells us that in verses 2 to 5, where all of a sudden he now shifts and he says, here's what happens. We get pushed out in the wilderness, and all the stuff is taken away. We find ourselves out there exhausted, faint, thirsty. We start reflecting and thinking and recalling. What has been or what should be. And David begins this reflection. And as he reflects, he gives us insight into what starts satisfying this soul that is thirsty and a flesh that is yearning and a soul that is seeking earnestly. Here's how he says it. Verse 2 Thus, he reflects now I have beheld past tense your sanctuary in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. David starts off here, and he starts reflecting. The first thing he reflects on is a sanctuary. Now, to understand the sanctuary in David's time, this is before the temple. Solomon built a temple. All you have in Jerusalem at this time is the tabernacle, that big tent that they put up. But inside the big tent is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant has these two angels, cherubim angels, and their wings spread across the top. And they touch at the top. And they come down to the sides. And in between there, it identifies the Shekinah glory, that residential glory of God. That's where he resides. And that's where the high priest would go in and and put the blood on the ark for the forgiveness of sin each year. That's what is there. And as David is leaving Jerusalem at this time, the priests actually gather up the ark and they start walking the ark out with David as they leave Jerusalem. And David finds out the ark is when they say, guys, you take it back. It doesn't go with us. It stays in the tabernacle. It stays where God is, and he sends it back to Jerusalem. So now he's wandering in the wilderness. He's out there on his own, and he starts beholding, rethinking, reflecting on,, the sanctuary. What's the sanctuary mean? It's not like us coming into our sanctuary. You've got to understand, this is where God is present. And he starts reflecting. He identifies a couple things. He identifies not just the sanctuary where that forgiveness of sin takes place. He starts talking about the power of God. He recalls where that Shekinah glory is. He knows what that means in his life. He reflects and says, you know, when I think of the sanctuary, I think of God's power at work for the nation of Israel. He also thinks of the glory. That's that residential presence of God. He recalls that. He recalls when it was described by Moses and all where all of a sudden God's glory came in and (laughs) filled the Holy of Holies. He recalls what that is. And he understands that's the glory of God. And as he contemplates the sanctuary and God's power and God's glory, as he reflects on this, he also remembers one other thing. That's where the people of God gather too. Where do the people of God go? They go where the tabernacle is. Where do the people of God go? They go where the Ark of the Covenant Where do the people of God go? It's where the priests are. Where do the people of God go? They go to Jerusalem. And here he's out in, uh, in Judah, in the wilderness, and he starts reflecting on who God is. He says, you know, God's in the sanctuary. That's where he resides. That's where he shows us he's the leader of the nation of Israel. God is the one who shows his power, and we see his power there. God's the one who shows us his glory. That's what we see there. God is also the one who shows me where the people of God are. And he identifies in this heart that is reflecting that there's this being with God's people that becomes part of that intimacy with God. Well, this is one we all know it's true. It's interesting when I watch, even my own life, but when I talk with other people, when they've been walking with God and things have been going well and all of a sudden they start having attention with God, the, the, the walk with God becomes a little more tenuous. They find themselves being pushed out in the wilderness. You know what the first thing that happens in their life? They usually walk away from the people of God. You know, all of a sudden, you know, they usually sit right there. That's where they sit every Sunday. And you know what? They're not there today. And we say, well, it must be a Sunday they're gone. They're not there next Sunday. They're not there the third Sunday. And our tendency, when we get pushed out in the wilderness, our tendency when all of a sudden we find that brokenness, we start leaving the people of God. And David reflects on intimacy with God as not just being at the sanctuary for God, he's at the sanctuary also for the people of God that are there. He continues in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. And now he talks about God's loving kindness. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. And as he does this, he's identifying several things. This word uh, loving kindness, it's, um, that's really a special word in the Old Testament. It's Hesed. It identifies God's loyal love. God's loyal covenantal love. It's a special relation that God has with the nation of Israel. And David starts reflecting, he says, i pushed out the way, he says, you know, I just reflect upon God's loving kindness. is better than take note what he says here. Better than life. Here's the king of the nation of Israel finds himself pushed out in the wilderness. I don't know about you. I think I'd be trying to figure out a way to get back to Jerusalem, get back on the throne. I'd find myself trying to figure out how to make things better, how to get back my old life, how to get all the things I used to have, how to get back and use my new car, my new house, how to enjoy all the people. I... That's what I would focus on, but that's not David. He says he's ready to give all that up as he reflects on the loving Loyal love of God. Why do I say that? The result of this is that he's not going to give thanks. He's going to give praise. You ever listen to your prayers of thanks? What we thank God for? Not that we shouldn't thank God. We get our family together around Father's Day, we thank God for fathers. I'm all for thanking fathers i'm all for that but we thank god for people we thank god for circumstances we thank god for the things we have the things we own the things we possess we thank god for the things we're going to do we thank god for the things that have been we thank god for all these things and david comes to the place reflecting on the loving kindness of god he says it's better than life and the result is he praises god whoa that's a shift He makes no petition in this psalm to get back home, to take control again, to be king once more. He doesn't even thank God for anything that's happened in his life. No good thing, no positive, anything. He praises God for who he is. Those are the attributes of God. And when he gets pushed out into the wilderness, he starts reflecting and says, you know what? It's better than my whole life. It's better than my computer. My iPhone. I lust for those. I don't have one, so I can say I'm thankful for my iPhone. But for an iPhone, an iPad, an i whatever you want, (laughs) you give God thanks for those things. We give God thanks for the things we have: our cars, our campers, our boats, our fishing rods. We give God thanks for skateboards. We give God thanks for iPods. We give God thanks for the things we have. And David says, take all those things of life and set them aside. When he gets into the wilderness, you start reflecting upon God. You realize, you know what? That's not the stuff I really live for. It's for the hessid, loyal love, covenantal relationship with God that works. And I praise him for his power for his strength, for his love, for his faithfulness, for his justice. I thank God for his truth, his omniscience and omnipotence. I thank you, God. I praise you for all who you are. And he shifts up the praise of God. Not the thanks for those things on the earth. How powerful is this reflection? Notice verse (coughs) 4. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. Here's a man who's been pushed out of the kingdom, pushed off the throne, finds himself in the wilderness, and he is praising God with joyful words on his lips. In the midst of all that trouble, he finds intimacy with God, a soul that is satisfied as he reflects on God, as he seeks after God. God comes in and completely satisfies his soul, overwhelms him with all his sustenance that he needs, takes care of his thirst and his hunger, and meets all the needs that he has and satisfies his soul. And David finds himself seeking after God and realizing this satisfied soul, it's going to come when you're pushed into the wilderness and you start reflecting on God. But he does a second thing. He not only reflects on God, he then remembers what God has done. Look at verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. I don't know about you, but nighttime's really hard if you're going through difficult times. I mean, if you're David in the wilderness, your son's rebelling and all that's taking place, you put your head on your pillow at night to go to sleep, and what do you start thinking about? All the troubles in your heart. You go to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow and when you come to nighttime, your reflection is on all the things that really weigh upon your soul, all the stress that is in your life, all the things you wish were fixed, all the things you want help with, all the things that overwhelm you You can lay there at bed and can take you a half hour, an hour, hour and a half to fall asleep. Or you can fall asleep And you wake up about 2 or 3 in the morning. You go to the bathroom, you come back to bed, and you cannot sleep. You cannot fall asleep. You lay there just thinking, 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 thinking about those things that have pushed you out in the wilderness and how you can fix them and help them and make them work. Nighttime's a difficult time when you're in the wilderness. Nighttime's a very hard time because you're all alone. There's no distractions. You don't get to put your head on the pillow and have all this other stuff going on. You don't usually leave the TV on and the radio on and everything so you can be distracted. You usually turn everything off and all of a sudden it's like, it's just me and my soul. And it gets weighed down. And David understands that. So what does he do at night when he puts his head on the pillow when he gets ready to go to sleep? What does he do? He remembers, and what does he remember? He identifies two primary things. Verse 7, For you have been my help, in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy, and my soul clings to you. Why? Your right hand upholds me. He gives thanks. He recalls two things about God. One is his help, and the second one is his strength or his protection. When he speaks of his help, it's identifying that he remembers now when he looks back over his life, you know, God, you came and you did this and you did this and you did this and recalls the good things God has done. Uh, he did this in his younger life, too. I always enjoy it when he comes to that story of David and Goliath. Oh, we talk about Goliath, you know, he's head, uh, Saul was head and shoulders, he put the arm on him. <laughs> it's too big. And as David is coming up against Goliath, the question, how can you do this as such a young man? And he recalls that God delivered from the paw of the lion, he delivered from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver him from this uncircumcised Philistine. David in his younger days used to remember what God had done in the past. And now when he's pushed out in the wilderness, he's no longer on the throne, he's not the one ruling in Jerusalem, his rebellious son is in charge, David pauses and in the wilderness he remembers the help of God in his life. He then identifies he's not only a helper, he's also a protector, where he talks about this picture of the right hand. The right hand is one of strength and power, but it's also one of protection. And the reason I identify as protection, he talks about the shadow of God. Now, you have to understand shadow and shade if you're in the wilderness. If you're in the wilderness, there's no trees, and all you have is bright sunshine. If you have the bright sunshine, what's going to protect you from the sun? Shade how do you stay with the shade? You cling to the object that provides the shade. If you don't cling to the object, providing the shade, you're out in the sun. And he says, I'm going to cling to you for the shade. Our family one year went to, um, it's called sunshine. It's a Christian festival in Wilmar, Minnesota. It's about a three day event. And we went there with a bunch of friends, a bunch of high school kids, and we got to Wilmore, and it was so hot. I mean, it was like 99, 100 degrees, just all sun, no shade. It was a time of the year when it seemed like no matter where you were, there was no shade. But I still remember there's about eight of us adults. We had our tent set up and there was about the, the sun came over and it cast about a shade about this wide. Now, if you went by, you would have thought we were a strange group of people because we had all our lawn chairs in a straight line in a straight line by that tent as a little bit of shade covered right over our faces. Oh, our legs were exposed and our feet, but we didn't care. We had shade on our head. And you're sort of sitting there like this. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. How about you? I'm doing fine. And you're in the shade. So, whoo, whoo. This felt really good. You wanted the protection of the shade. And David describes our Heavenly Father. He describes God like that. When you get the bearing down heat of the sun, God comes in and provides the shade. It's a great picture of the Old Testament when it came to the children of Israel. I never, know if you've, if you've ever thought about this, but when you hear of that fire that led them by night and the cloud that led them by day, have you ever thought of how big that cloud was or how big that fire was? I mean, what is the purpose of the fire at night? Do you think it was just a, oh, it's like a lighthouse? Oh, God's still here. God's still here. Or was the purpose of that fire to keep them warm at night in the cold desert? How do you keep warm two and a half million people? Mel and I, when we first got married, lived in what was called a tin hut. In that tin hut, we had a space heater. It was this little gas heater. It was only about this wide. It stood about this high. And the blower on it took cold air. This is North Dakota, okay? North Dakota in the wintertime. It took cold air from the outside, straight through the pipe and across this little glass uh, gas flame about like this and blew it down the hallway. You know what we discovered? It was colder air coming out of that little furnace than if we just sat in front of it, okay? It didn't keep us warm hardly at all. Now you've got two and a half million people wandering in the wilderness. How big is the fire in the desert, folks? It covered all the people. We're not talking about this little flame. Who there's this, oh, there's God. It's like, whoa, there's God. Now how about in the daytime? What did the shade look like? How's he going to protect these people in the wilderness? How are they going to be protected from the sun? You need a cloud big enough to cover what? Two and a half million people. That's not the cloud like Elijah saw the size of the fist of a man. Like, whoa. No, this is a cloud. And as David reflects on the shade of his heavenly father, as he reflects on Elohim protecting him, he's in the wilderness too and say, I need a God who shades me, protects me, watches over me. And he remembers, he remembers all that God has done. He's been his help, his right hand. He's been a shade over him. And his response is, I need to cling. That's the same word used for marriage. No, for this cause, a man shall leave your mother and father and should cling to, that's the same word here. That same intimate word for marriage is used here for our relationship. And David says, I need to cling to God who's going to protect me with that shade. As David finds himself reflecting on all that, as he brings this remembering soul together, he then finishes off in verses 9 to 11 where he identifies that there is some victory. He finds it. And this victory says, you know, God, you will deal with my enemies and you will give joy to the king. He says it this way. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be prey for foxes. So, God, you're going to deal with them in the way you will. But here's the contrast. The king will rejoice in, not Jerusalem, not in his life. He's going to rejoice in God. He's not requesting to go back to get anything he used to have. He's saying his heart, his soul, his affections are going to be turned and they're going to rejoice in God. In the process, everyone who swears by him, the Lord, will glory. There's a boasting we then have in God for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. And, and there's a sense of this victory that he has. How so? In the life that he lives, which finds itself rejoicing in not his circumstances, not his life, not in Jerusalem, not in the kingdom, not in the throne, not in his friends, not in all the things he had back home, none of those things. He rejoices in God. There's another thing interesting about this psalm. We usually make a lot about the different names of God. And usually when you hear this word hesed, this loyal love, it speaks of Yahweh, the personal name of God. But David uses the same name for God through this whole psalm, either El or Elohim. Uh, That's the God of creation. That's God of power. Still a personal God, but he's identifying when we step out into the wilderness. I think he's identifying, you know, God, I need to see your power, your strength, your protection at work, so I can rejoice in you, God. And not my circumstance around me. David's whole point here, folks, is that sometimes we need to be pushed out or driven out into the wilderness in order that we may find our our thirsting soul satisfied by God. Sometimes it's actually the wilderness that awakens our soul to all the distractions and things that have filled it. And we get pushed out in the wilderness. We reflect, we remember, and we realize all the things that have been filling our soul, all the things we've been dreaming and hoping for, all the things we give thanks for, all the good things in our life, which somehow exhausts us and create this soul that is thirsting after God. And he draws us back to say we need to realize that God's the one who satisfies our soul. It's sort of strange in this psalm to find out that it can actually be this sort of family oppression. These difficult days, this wandering in the wilderness that creates the atmosphere for this to happen. That somehow if we reflect on the rebellion of kids or parents or spouses or disobedience of parents or children or spouses or friends, if we reflect on the foolishness that they may have, that somehow when all that takes place, that God's pushed us out into the wilderness so that our soul seeks after him, and that we find ourselves satisfied, satisfied by God. Interesting, when Jesus Christ starts speaking of this, this idea of the thirsting soul, turn to John 4 with me. I want to just show you two verses out of John where it speaks of the same concept. When Jesus talks about this thirsting, this thirsting in our soul he actually first introduces this idea when he's talking about the woman at the well when he talks to her the reason there she's there in the heat of the day is because she's a woman who would not go there in the morning with other women her lifestyle pushed her out there at a different time as jesus is talking with her about his life and her life he says this down in verses um verse 13 and 14 The words of Jesus, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And Jesus Christ is talking about this idea that he's the one who gives us water. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one that meets that thirst. And for wherever you may be, For David, all of a sudden he's in the wilderness because his son Absalom pushed him out. I want you to think through where your life is. If you find yourself pushed out into that wilderness, is it because of a son or a daughter that somehow you just feel like they've pushed you out? Do you find yourself sitting here and it's actually because of a parent? As you reflect on their life, as you live with them, it's like they've just pushed you out in the wilderness because of what they no longer provide is it a sense that it could be your spouse or somehow the way they're living has pushed you out in the wilderness like it's just not what you wanted it to be and the marriage is not how it's going and nobody even knows what it's like but you're out in the wilderness And you feel that aloneness with it or if it's a close friend who somehow has pushed you away and there's this wilderness effect that's taking on And in all of our circumstances, where we may be, we find ourselves coming to God and saying, my soul thirsts. And God says he will satisfy. As we find ourselves reflecting on God, as we find ourselves remembering God, he's the one who comes into that thirsty, yearning soul and satisfies that soul. Jesus spoke again. Turn to John 7. He spoke one more time about this thirsting soul and how he comes in to fill it. John 7, verses 37 to 38. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scriptures say, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. David and Jesus are telling us, look, there's a thirsting soul we have. It's satisfied in God. When our thirsting soul is in the wilderness, it'll be satisfied in God. And he asked us for that intimacy to find our thirst, our yearning, our seeking to come to God. And reflecting on him, on remembering of him, he satisfies our soul. So we finish up this morning. What we're going to do is um, I'm just going to give you time to reflect. oftentimes we finish up and say, okay, let's go. But we have time to not go. We have time to sit. And uh, what I want us to do is I'm just going to give you several minutes just to reflect. I mean, if you're in a wilderness, if you've been pushed out, you need to bring the wilderness to God. If you find yourself in the wilderness, it's, you know, God, all I've been wanting you to do is fix things. And all of a sudden I need to find you find you, not the things around me. And I want you to reflect or remember God. After we do that, there's going to be a break and you'll still be reflecting. I asked some of the worship team to come up and just play something quietly, just quietly. We'll still continue. And after we do that for a little bit, I'm going to say, we're going to sing a song. You do not have to stand up. You do not have to do anything. You can stand if you want. You can stay seated. Do it however you want at the end. We're going to sing a song together at the end, but it's the idea of a praise, not a thanks. But you may find yourself still wanting to sit there with God. Just sit there. We're not going to tell anybody to stand, anybody to sit. You can stand, you can kneel, you can sit, you can prostrate, you're free. We get to the song. But don't stand just because the person next to you stands. Do not feel guilted into standing. If you need to just sit with God. Okay? So we're going to prayer. Praise, remembering, reflection. That at this time. And we'll transition to that with a little music and then we'll come back and sing at the end, okay? Let's go to our time of reflection and remembering.